Well, everybody all right tonight? So far? Hey, Joe. <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, <clears throat> tonight we're going to be continuing through the book of Numbers. We find ourselves this evening, Numbers chapter 27, <clears throat> and as we, uh, as we take a look, Numbers chapter 27 has got some kind of an a, a interesting story that we're going to take a look at tonight and, and uh, hopefully uh, see how, how this all ties together uh, prophetically with the Word of God. But before we get going too far, I wanted to remind everybody it's Koinonia Sunday, in case uh, uh, anybody didn't know or didn't remember. And uh, so we're asking uh, A to L to bring salads and M to Z to bring desserts, and we got the taters. So we're going to have a potato bar. We'll have a neat time, so I want to encourage everybody to come and be a part of it. But every Sunday, and there'll be somebody Sunday who tells me, Jackie, I didn't know. And I'll say, well, I put it in the bulletin, and I said something Wednesday night. And uh, next time I'll try to remember to say something the Sunday morning before. But um, we want to encourage you to come be a part of that with us. Well, let's take a look. Numbers, chapter 27. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hafer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the family of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters. Malah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, Terzah. Anybody looking for girls' names? There's a whole list of them. You want to encourage you to <laughs> go right to them. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting. And they said, Hey, our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company with Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sons. So why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. Now as we're taking a look, what we're seeing is the beginning of the division for who's going to inherit what when they come into the land. And already in chapter 26, they mentioned this man and the fact that he had no sons. So that his, uh, his inheritance will be passed on to the nearest male relative. But his girls... They all come to, to Moses and say, hey, wait a minute, we, we don't know that, that that don't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. So they come to Moses and they say, "Can we don't want our father's name to pass away and, and there be no inheritance for his family just because he didn't have any sons. Here we are, his daughters. What can we do about this? And so Moses says, it's, it's something we can learn from Moses over and over and over again. Moses brought their case before the Lord. A lot of times people will come in and, and I catch myself because folks will come in and say, hey, uh, I think we should do this or I think we should do that. What do you think of that? And, and if I answer right off the top of my head, you know, most of the time I'll say, well, that sounds pretty good to me. But we don't see Moses doing that, right? What's Moses do? He takes it before the Lord. He's, he, he lays everything before the Lord. And that is a habit. It's so important for us to develop. The Bible tells in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him in everything. I was reminded uh, 
when I was doing when I was doing youth ministry, we had a, a get together with all the youth kids. They were all gathered together. We're having a good time, and about six of the kids they decided, hey, we're going to go over to so and so's house and go swimming, and and uh, it was okay with everybody for them to be able to do that. So they got in their car, they took off, and went to their house to go swimming. On the way to go to that house to go swimming. What they didn't know is there was a couple of carloads of drunk kids coming the other way that were racing. And they were coming around a blind corner, double yellow corner, and they were trying to pass one another around that corner. They came around and there was a head-on collision and we end up with uh, six kids in one car and four kids in the other car in four different hospitals in Southern California as a result of the accident. Everybody was okay, everything worked out okay, but it was funny to me because it emphasized a point. And the point was, it never entered into to the kids' minds, hey, before we decide to go swimming, let's pray about it. Let's pray about whether or not this is what God wants us to do. Now, it may be the Lord worked great things through that accident, but isn't it funny how, how often it is that we won't pray about something we consider to be a little thing? It's just a little deal, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've been praying about changing, or I've been thinking about changing jobs, or I've been thinking about moving, or I've been thinking about selling my house. Or, But are we taking all those things? The Bible says not to lean into your own understanding, but in everything you do, acknowledge the Lord. Moses wasn't perfect at it, but later on in his life, as we've seen here toward the end of the book of Numbers, he was awful good at it. People would come to him, let's pray. There's, there's no emergency in God's plan. So when there's something brought up, that's how we always want to we always want to consider it. We always want to take it to the Lord. We always want to take it to him. And then in verse 6 it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, The daughters of Zelophehad, they speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you will cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you will give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you will give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father's brothers have no, or if he, if his father has no brothers, then you will give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he will possess it, and will be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment. And thus the Lord commanded Moses. And we have this little story. Now, chapter 12, it's going to change focus and we're going to go in another direction. But a lot of times, people will go through the Old Testament and we make this error. We get cruising, we're going fast, we look at something and we go, what does that have to do with anything? What we know about the scriptures is that they all point to Christ. They all have something to do with him. They all are, in one way or another, going to refer back to him. And it's interesting, this particular law that comes into play actually comes into play in the genealogy of Christ. Because God pronounces a blood curse on Jeconiah. And he says, he has no sons. He, he's, he's going to be forgotten for me. But there's a problem. See, Jeconiah is in the lineage of Joseph. But remember, the Lord said that it's possible to pass that lineage on to the daughter. So you have two genealogies in the New Testament, right? Genealogy in Luke 
and a genealogy of Matthew. One genealogy lays out for us a genealogy of Joseph with Jeconiah and God's word saying, hey, the kingly line's not going to pass through Jeconiah. And then you have Mary's, who also is part of the kingly line, but not through the cursed line of Jeconiah. It's a, it's a concept that lays out for us what could take place is the, the husband would be adopted by the family of the, of the girl, of, of the woman that he marries. He would become an adopted part of that family and then would, would be a part of that family. And it's interesting because in Luke chapter 3, you hear Joseph uh, being given that, that same right um, from the family, from Mary's family, that he would be their son-in-law. And that ultimately, through Mary, would pass the lineage that would tie Christ to the line of David. All that happens because Zelophad's daughter said, hey, this, this is not fair. Are you just going to run over us and, and the line's going to end? And the Lord said, no, it just won't pass through the men. It'll go to the daughters. And we see that taking place here. The other thing that we don't want to miss is how remarkable it is in this aspect. None of them had any land yet. They hadn't done anything. They're on the other side of the Jordan. They can see the walls of Jericho off in the distance. They hadn't entered in, but by faith, believing that they were going to go, that they were going to be successful, that they were going to take the land, and there was going to be an inheritance, they wanted to be part of it. And we see in that these women willing to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't have anything yet, but we're believing God's going to be faithful to his promise. And we want to realize, we want to recognize that, that faith because that's the kind of thing that we ourselves want to walk in. Well, in verse 12, he goes on. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. So God's speaking to Moses about going up upon this mountain. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them who may lead them out and who may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep who have no shepherd. Now we're going to see a near and far fulfillment here. We're going to see the near fulfillment be Joshua. Joshua's going to fill that role of leader. What's the far fulfillment? Jesus Christ, right? Someone who can lead them in, lead them out. Didn't Jesus say, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep so we see this ultimately being fulfilled in the life of jesus christ as moses calls out but in the meantime we're going to see the lord direct him toward joshua the son of Nun. so he says to him the lord said to moses take joshua the son of Nun, with you a man in whom is a spirit and lay your hand on him and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. 
and you shall give some of your authority to him. One of the interesting things that we're going to see about Joshua, as Joshua leads the people to that victorious life in the land, is that he is never a Moses. In fact, there is never going to be another Moses. Joshua is going to be Joshua, and God's going to work through Joshua, but God's not going to speak to Joshua like he spoke to Moses. Moses and God, there was a special thing going on there. God would speak to Moses, the scriptures say, face to face. Uh, He didn't go through anyone else. He would speak directly to him. And that's not going to be the case with Joshua. For the majority of the time, God's going to speak to him through the high priest. The Lord's going to give him the word like he's going to give his word to the rest of the leaders of the nation of Israel. So there's something being passed And we're going to see in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talk about it and say that there will come another prophet like him that has that kind of a relationship with God. That prophet is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would speak to the Father face to face. He would have that same type of a relationship as we see uh, between Moses and God only between uh, Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Father. And so, ultimately, we see that taking place. And here we see kind of twofold. One, Joshua starts leading little by little. But keep in mind, where's Moses going? To the top of a mountain, right? And once he sees the promised land, what's going to happen? He's going to die. That's it. So, as he's heading up there, he's got to make sure... That Joshua is ready to lead, ready to take the people. Uh, it says uh, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he will stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. Ultimately, what's he talking about? The Urim and the Thummim, the lights and perfection. Nobody really knows what the lights and perfection were. There's a lot of speculation. It was how the children of Israel received a word from God. Some people say, well, say, yeah, he knows what it is, but we won't go there. But <clears throat> the Urim the Urim and the Thummim, Scripture doesn't tell us what it is. It's just lights and perfection. Some people say a black rock and a white rock. Other people say that on his breastplate, each of the colors that he wore, uh, the, the gems that he wore representing the different tribes, would light up in a different way that would give God's word to, to the priest, to the high priest, when he was seeking direction from the Lord. The point is, nobody knows. Nobody knows really how God spoke to the high priest in those days. Any more than it is uh, easy for us to explain how God speaks to us. But those of us who have, have felt the voice of the Lord, the God speaking to our hearts. Some of us audibly have, have felt God speak to us and direct us. And then you try to explain that to somebody else and they look at you like, you might as well say, you know, the Lord spoke to me through the Urim and the Thummim because they don't quite understand what you're talking about and what you're expressing to them. But that's how this, this, the Lord was going to speak to Joshua. You see how much different that is from Moses. Moses went to the door of the tabernacle himself. God talked to him. Now God's going to talk to the high priest. And at his word they will go out. And at his word they will come in. He and all the children of Israel with him. 
all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. One of the most important things we can ever learn to do in any regard with, with, uh, within our position within the body of Christ is to learn to raise up leaders. To raise up. Every church is one generation from folding the doors, right? If there's not another generation following the one that's in place, that church will die. Barring an a incredible work of God, it's our responsibility to take up, raise up the next generation, put our hands on them, anoint them, to pour ourselves into them so that they can then become that next generation. What's one of the heartbreaks really across the board in regard to church life is the reality that it's so hard to find people who feel called of God to, to pour themselves into the young people, to the first graders and second graders and kindergartners and uh, fifth graders and the junior hires and the high schoolers. Somebody's got to pour into them. It just doesn't happen. Now, as Christian parents, we should be raising up our children to walk in that way. But the reality is, not every kid in in this community has Christian parents. But they'll come. Here, we want to have that attitude. The the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that we're to, to commit these teachings to godly men who are going to further the work of God, who are going to raise up the next generation. Raise up the next generation. When it falls on our shoulders, this generation has a responsibility to raise up the next, even as Moses laid his hands on Joshua and raised him up. And how long have we been reading about Joshua? Since they left Egypt. Joshua has been following behind Moses ever since. And having an opportunity to learn from Moses, watch Moses. Uh, he was one of the two spies, right? Sent into the land of Kadesh Barnea, who came back with a positive report. So we see that, uh, that, that Moses' hand and training and leadership has been upon him for a long time. Now the day has come. Now the day has come. He's been raised up. Now, chapter 28, we're going to begin to talk again about the offerings and the feasts. Now, we've talked about the offerings and the feasts in Leviticus. We talked about them in, uh, in Exodus. We're going to talk about them again, and it's important to understand why. The reason we're talking about them again is what happened to the generation who heard the word the last time? Oh, they're all dead in the wilderness, right? New generation. And God wants to, again, emphasize. How many, if the Lord emphasizes something three, four, five different places in the scripture, does that make it important? Sure it does. It means, hey, there's something about this. There's something to see. There's something to apply. There's something to look at. So, so we're going to take a look at these feasts. I got a, a couple of slides. We can throw one up, Cindy, on, if he can, uh, if he can get to it. <clears throat> we're going to talk first about the Levitical offerings. Now we've already gone over some of them, so I'll just give you a quick highlight on it as we, uh, just before we go through. There are the sweet savor sacrifices. The sweet savor, remember the sweet aroma to the Lord, those are always voluntary. That's why they have a sweet smelling aroma. Because God's people do it voluntarily. That's the the burnt offering that spoke of consecration. The the meal offering, the grain offering that was given. The peace offering. 
All of those things were free will gifts from, of worship from God's people to the Lord. The two compulsory were the, the didn't have a sweet savor are for us. That's the sin offering and the trespass offering. Those are ones we have to do or that they had to be a part of so that they could have a relationship with the Lord. No, it's not any different for us. We have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice is kind of a moot point. Right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present yourself a living sacrifice. That is a free will offering of yourself to God, which is your reasonable act of worship that the Scripture is talking about. So first, we're going to take a look at these. <clears throat> we'll go through them in chapter 28, the first few verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering... For food and my offerings made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you will offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. How often did the priests offer a sacrifice? Every single day. Now, there's going to be one that's going to happen every day by day. There's one that's going to happen uh, week by week. There's one that's going to happen month by month. That the Lord calls for it. And that's what he's going over. These are first the day to day. Then, and verse 4. Now the one lamb you will offer in the morning, and the other lamb you will offer in the evening. Listen, basically what were they being taught? To begin and end their day. Focused on the Lord. That is that any different for us? How many times you read the Psalms? There's probably five, eight references to rising up early in the morning to spend time with the Lord and closing out your day and spending time with the Lord in the evening. In the morning and the evening. Just like the offerings, that's the call that God has for us. We want to be walking with the Lord. You cannot walk with the Lord and show up to spend time with the Lord once a week, twice a week. Day by day, every morning, every evening, waking up that day and dedicating that day to the Lord. What was the burnt offering? An offering of consecration. Waking up in the morning and say, Lord, this is your day. What did the psalmist say? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God, what do you have for me today? How are you directing me today? At the end of the day, thanking the Lord for that day or praising God that you get a new one tomorrow. But either way, we're closing out the day uh, recognizing the Lord. We're opening the day, recognizing the Lord. The same thing that we see of them. One lamb given in the morning, one lamb given in the evening. He goes on, verse 5, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with one-fourth a hen of pressed oil. And it is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained in Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth a hen for each lamb, in a holy place, you will pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. Now the other lamb you will offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and the drink offering. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire, sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Now on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish. Okay, so we talked about the daily sacrifice. But on the Sabbath day, it was two now, what's the Sabbath day? Saturday. Saturday's the Sabbath. God didn't 
change the Sabbath. The Sabbath will and always has been Saturday. So on Saturday, they had two lambs instead of one lamb that would be offered on that day. So we got the day-to-day sacrifice. Then the Sabbath, how many times does the Sabbath happen? Once a week, right? So when the Sabbath rolls around, there was a special offering about the Sabbath, focused on the Sabbath, giving uh, two lambs to the Lord on that day. He says, now this is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And then verse 11, at the beginning of your months, you will present a burnt offering to the Lord. So, day by day, every Sabbath, and every new moon. The new month. Keep in mind, the Jewish calendar is not like our calendar. Our calendar is a lunar calendar. The Jewish calendar is a, or our calendar, I'm sorry, is a solar calendar. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. That means their day went from evening to, to evening. Ours goes from morning to morning. So when their, when their new month happened, was on the new moon. And there was a certain way that they would do it. But every month on the new moon, they were to offer a burnt offering. But something began to happen with the children of Israel. In fact, we read about it in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 14. Shows us how the, the parties that the people would have slowly degraded into debauchery and, and idol worship away from the Lord. The Lord says in Isaiah 1, 14, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me and I am weary of bearing them. And I wonder how different the Lord looks at those to whom going to church on, on Sunday is just tradition. It's just something I do. For the rest of my time, would the Lord say the same thing? I, I, I detest your Sunday morning worship or whatever it is. The same kind of an attitude. They would come and have an, uh, an offering of consecration to God at the beginning of every month. So we got a day-by-day sacrifice. You're counting this up because there's a lot of lambs, right? Day-by-day sacrifice, every week, double sacrifice on the Sabbath, and every new moon, the beginning of every month, again, another consecration unto the Lord. At the beginnings of your month, you will present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year without blemish. Somebody keeping score on all this? Because there's going to be a test at the end. If you hang on long enough, I'll probably tell you the answer. <clears throat> then he says, three-tenths of an ephah, fine flowers, a grain offering mixed, um, mixed with oil for each bowl, two-tenths of an ephah, fine flour, a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram, and one-tenth of an ephah and fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb, as a burnt offering of sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Okay, again, these are burnt offerings, offerings of a sweet savor to god consecrating themselves in worship to him and the the lord had them do it every day every morning every evening once a week once a month that they would focus in on these areas but as we see in isaiah chapter one their focus got drifting and these things became party days so they quick go down to church Do their sacrifice real fast. Get this done so we can go drink, get wasted, have a good time. You know, pray to Baal or whatever other gods we want to pray to. It was all, it all just became ritual to them. It didn't carry about the meaning of what the, what the scripture tells in Romans. Present ye 
your bodies, therefore, a living sacrifice. That you are being consecrated to the Lord. This is a, the idea that he's carrying out here. Their drink offering will be one half a hen of wine for a bull, one third a hen for a ram, one fourth a hen for lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. How many months in a year? Okay, so there's 12 times they're going to have a new moon. There's 12 times that they're going to have that new month. They're going to have that celebration consecrated unto the Lord. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering to the Lord will be offered beside the regular burn offering and his drink offering. Okay, so that's discussing these Levitical offerings. He's going over it again, okay, briefly. Now, they've got the ability to go back and read Leviticus and Exodus and see a, a little bit finer breakdown on those things if they want to do that. Now, in the next slide we got, we'll take a look at the feasts. The next thing we're going to focus on are the spring feasts, okay? We've talked about these before. You guys remember how many feasts are there? God's appointed times. There's seven feasts. Three in the month of Nisan. Three in the month of Tishri. And one kind of stuck in the middle that doesn't fit in either one of those categories. We'll talk about it in a minute. So as he's going over these, once again, each one of these appointed feasts, it also means appointed times. Each one spoke prophetically of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The spring feasts typically look at his incarnation, his birth, and his sacrifice. And then, or his first coming, if you will. And the fall feasts are going to focus on what many people think are his, the second coming. What's going to take place when he returns with one stuck in the middle that we'll, like I said, talk about in a minute. So, take a look. The spring feasts, the first one. Passover, right? Passover, Passover is on the 14th of Nisan. Something else happened on the 14th of Nisan. We remember what it was? Jesus was crucified. The Passover lamb between the evenings from the 13th to the 14th. <clears throat> then the next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we focus in on, was a seven-day feast. It started the 15th and went for seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so we see within Passover you have Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread all tied together as well as the Feast of first fruits. They're all going to occur uh, within three days. Okay, so let's consider it. The 14th Passover on the 10th of Nisan, the lamb was to be inspected at the temple. The 10th of Nisan, also known as the 6th of April, 32 AD, spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9, as the day the Messiah would be presenting himself at the temple in Jerusalem. The day Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday walked in to be presented. Four days he would be examined by the priests crucified on that fourth day between the evenings. Then... The Feast of First Fruits. Remember, when we look at the Feast of First Fruits, what are we talking about? We're talking about the first Sunday after the Sabbath, after Passover. All right, so Passover could occur at any time, but the first Sabbath after Passover, the next day, that Sunday, 
is the, the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, in, in this case, occurs three days after the Passover, which would make it the 17th of Nisan. Remember what happened the Sunday after Passover? Three days later, Jesus rose again to become our first fruits. First fruit from the dead. So in chapter 28, this is what we're going to focus on. This first section. And we're going to break it down a little bit, a little bit more as we go on. Uh, as we take a look at the spring feast. And again, the spring feasts are going to focus in on Jesus' first coming. We can flip to the next slide real quick. And what I have here is a, a setup of their calendar and how it uh, lines up with our calendar. Um, and you see old and new. Old is Old Testament calendar, new, or not Old Testament, but the, the old original Genesis calendar and the new calendar which occurs after uh, Passover is instituted in Egypt. Remember the Lord told Moses, this shall be a first of months for you. So the Lord changed the calendar and made <clears throat> Nisan the first or the beginning of the religious year. And Tishri, which was first, becomes seventh, and it becomes the beginning of the civil year. So they have two calendars, a, a religious calendar, which began uh, with Nisan, and a civil calendar, which begins with Tishri. Um, really doesn't make any point or any difference to us at this point. Uh, they run with the, our months, which you see in that calendar. Uh, in that, in that column on the right. So it gives us an idea where their months fit, how that works for us, and, and uh, where they land. So as we look at uh, where we are in chapter 28, verse 16, on the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. Let's go to the next slide. And we've got the, the Passover, some of those things that we talked about. On the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the on the 15th day of the month is the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. One of the first things that they would do with that feast of unleavened bread was to clear out all the leaven that was in the area and make sure that leaven was removed. What was leaven a picture of? Sin. Who's going to remove all sin? Jesus Christ. By what? His sacrifice on the Passover. Examined on the 10th of Nisan, uh, prophesied by Daniel chapter 9, offered between the evenings. Kind of an interesting side note, the Egyptian calendar is the calendar that first laid out for us Friday the 13th to be an unlucky evening. Between the evenings, so Friday the 13th to the 14th, is when the first Passover took place in Egypt. You remember what happened on that day? If, the, if their doorposts weren't marked with blood... The firstborn of every house died, right? That became synonymous with an unlucky day which filtered down throughout time till we have the concept of Friday the 13th today. Just an interesting side note. The other thing that's curious is the Passover lamb, they were not to break one bone. Not one bone. What do we see about Jesus Christ? Remember the Roman soldier was given a declaration to go break the bones of the one hanging on the cross. And he broke his orders, right? The, the, I've been in the military. When, when the guy in charge of me tells me to go do something, he doesn't expect me to think. 
he expects me to do. If he said, go break their legs, he meant, go break their legs. Who cares he's already dead? But when he came to Jesus, he found he was already dead. He didn't break his legs. Fulfillment of prophecy that the Passover lamb would not have one bone broken. Why is that important? Where is blood produced? In the marrow, in the bone. A broken bone would would indicate an inability to produce blood. The blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so full that it's able to affect every life on the planet. One sacrifice for all of mankind. So not one bone was to be broken. It, it carries over that picture. And again, Jesus is our Passover. We see it in John one twenty nine, and also in verse 36 of John chapter 1. Uh, Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the fulfillment of Passover, as we see here in, uh, in verses 16 and, uh, and, and 17. Now in verse 17, we talk about unleavened bread. Let's flip over to unleavened bread next. The Feast of Hag Hamatzah. Leaven, again, we talked about being a symbol for sin. You remember in the Passover dinner at the Seder, there are three matzahs in one linen. Three in one. Does that remind us of anything? Scripture talks about the Trinity. Three in one. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You ask uh, a, a, a rabbi today, why do they have them? He's going to say, well, I don't know, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, they'll have a lot of different ideas about what that is, but why are they all in one linen? doesn't make any sense. It really, and then, if they think it makes sense, ask them, why do they take the middle one out, the second one, and break it? The second matzah would be pulled out, broken in half, wrapped in a separate linen, and hidden and it's called that which comes after. Later on, they'll send a child out to discover where he's been laying. So we see the symbolism all throughout the feast. The other thing that we want to note, the four cups of Passover, Jesus institutes communion on the third cup. The scriptures tell us in the third cup, the cup of blessing, Jesus said this represents uh, the, my blood shed for you for the remission of sin. So instituting uh, the, the, the communion at the third cup. So this spoken of in verse uh, 17, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here's what he says about it. In verse 18, on the first day, you will have a holy convocation. You will do no customary work. And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two bowls, one ram, seven lambs in the first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Again, the Lord wants what? Leftovers are the best. He wants the best. He doesn't want what's left over. I'm always amazed. You know, when I was at Joshua Springs, every once in a while, somebody would come by and say, hey, I want to I give the, the church a car. You know, they never give a new car to the church. The car that they give to the church was the car that the guy wouldn't even take on a trade-in. He says, oh, man, just take that to the dump. Oh, I got a better idea. I'll give it to the church. The Lord said he wanted the best, the best that we had to give. And so that was the idea here within the sacrifice. You didn't give your lame, you know, you had all these baby lambs, but one with only three legs. God doesn't want the three-legged one. He wants the best ones. He wants the best that we have to give. Well, he goes on. 
The grain offering will be fine flour mixed with oil. Three tenths of an ephah shall be offered for a bull, two tenths for a ram. You will offer one tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs. Also, one goat is a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these beside the burnt offering in the morning, which is for the regular burnt offering. In this manner, you will offer the food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And it will be offered beside the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you will have a holy convocation where you will do no customary work. Verse 26, also on the day of first fruits. Now remember, the day of first fruits was how many days later? Jesus rose in three days, right? So the, the feast of first fruits was always a Sunday. Always, because it was the day after the Sabbath after Passover. Passover could happen on any given time. But the feast of first fruits was always the next Sunday morning. The feast of first fruits. So he says, Now on the day of your first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord, uh, also on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord, at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation where you will do no customary work. So the next one, after Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're going to look at is the Feast of First Fruits. <clears throat> Again, the, the morrow, the next day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, always a Sunday. It is the morning of the ultimate of first fruits. And as an interesting side note, when we study the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, anybody want to take a guess on when the flood of Noah ended? When the, when the ark came to rest at its resting point. The scripture tells us the day. Remember I told you in Genesis, um, we're, we're using the old calendar prior to uh, the initiation uh, at Passover. <clears throat> so it, we're told that it arrived in Genesis 8 for the ark rested the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Noah gets a new beginning on the day of first fruits. Same day Jesus, years later, rose from the dead. The day of first fruits, the feast of first fruits. Okay, so these are the spring feasts. Now, he mentioned quickly, and we'll talk about it briefly, the, the, the uh, feast that doesn't fit with the spring or the fall. But this feast occurs 50 days later. Anybody know what that is? Day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 days. So you're counting 50 days later, okay? The, 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 the Feast of, of Weeks. And so, um, I don't know if I have that next. I might put that a little bit on the end. What do I got next? I have the, the Fall Feast coming up. So we're going to come back and touch on it in a minute. It's, it's an interesting point, but let's see what the Lord had to say about it. Uh, verse 27, you will present a burnt offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs. Now that's happening often, right? You guys been keeping count. Yeah. Remember there's a test at the end with their grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah, um, for each bowl, two tenths for one ram, one tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. 
And be sure that they are without blemish. You will present them with their drink offerings beside the regular burnt offering with its grain offering. So that's the spring and includes the Feast of Pentecost, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, about a little bit later. So then we come to chapter 29. Chapter 29 is going to focus on the fall feast, which symbolize or, or signify to you and I the second coming. Now that ought to strike a chord with us. There ought to be something in there, some pretty interesting things. If, if these three feasts look at a yet future event, what, what yet future events are they looking at? Well, the beautiful thing when we look at, at things that are yet future is uh, we don't see it as clearly. The stuff that has already happened, it's amazing how easy that is to see. You ever notice that? You're praying, Lord, deliver me from this. After God has delivered you years later, you look back and you say, wow, I can see how God did all this. But at the time, it was hard to see, wasn't it? It was hard to see. Same thing when we look at at prophecy that is yet future, our ability to understand it completely. But I'll leave it uh, open for you to, to, to make some judgments on it. The fall feast occurred in the seventh month. The seventh month is the month of Tishri. Tishri, the first day of the seventh month, would be the, the Feast of Trumpets. Let's take a look. Chapter 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you will have a holy convocation. You will do no customary work for you. It is the day of the blowing of the trumpets. You will offer a burnt offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering will be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram. One-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And one kid of the goats is a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offerings, with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offerings with its grain offering and their drink offerings, according to the ordinance as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So they still had all the other offerings. And then this on top. So let's take a look at the, the Feast of Trumpets. Hopefully, it's my next slide. Yom Terura, the Feast of Trumpets. It coincides today with Rosh Hashanah. A lot of people point to it as Rosh Hashanah. It may not exactly be. The idea behind it is uh, that there was a great blowing of the trumpets. Now, when we think about the great blowing of the trumpets uh, in Scripture, it automatically, for me, I don't know about for you, reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says that there is a day coming when the, the, the archangel will shout, the trump of God will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be gathered together with the Lord and in the air, and we will always be with him from that moment forward. It's possible that that's what the Feast of Trumpets is signifying, the second coming of the Lord, picturing for us the rapture of the church. Uh, there are other views. I don't want to say that's the only view. I encourage you to do studies on the feasts, uh, the seven feasts. Because remember, these are called seven appointed times. Not just feasts, seven appointed times. So, um, also immediately at the day, Yom Terura, the, the day of trumpets, literally is what that means. There, or the, the day of the great blast uh, of the trumpet. Immediately following would be Yomim. Noreim, which means the ten days of affliction. Immediately after the trumpet blast would occur a time of great affliction. Interesting, at least for me. These ten days of affliction, 
that would take place was a time when the children of Israel were to focus on their relationship with the Lord and where they had fallen short and, and the, the forgiveness that they needed in a restored relationship which would occur at Yom Kippur. Now, as we look, Yom Teruah, this is the Feast of Trumpets spoken of here in chapter uh, 29, uh, ending at verse 7. Now, he's going to talk about the next one, Yom Kippur. You can flip that slide over to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you will give a holy convocation. You will afflict your souls, and you shall, do, you shall not do any work. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was September 8th this year. I think it was September 8th this year. But on Yom Kippur, they would totally and utterly focus on the Lord. That was all that they were to do that day. You will present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma. One bull, one ram, seven lambs of the first year. Be sure they're without blemish. The grain offering will be fine flour mixed with oil. Two-tenths of an ephah for the bull. Two-tenths for one ram. One-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering beside the sin offering for atonement. The regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and their drink offerings. Now that would occur on the 10th of Tishri. It's the day of national repentance for the nation of Israel. Okay, they still celebrate Yom Kippur today. It was the only day in the entire year that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And he didn't go in just by himself. He went in first burning incense on the golden altar and second with the blood of the sacrifice to put on the mercy seat. The only way that he could come before the presence of God was with the blood of the sacrifice. How do we come before Almighty God? We have to come with the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice given for us. That Our day of atonement occurred on that day when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we were made at one with God as a result of the sacrifice that took place. On that day, interesting note, they took two goats. One goat became the sacrifice. That goat was for the Lord. The second was the Azazel, the, the scapegoat. Now the scapegoat would be tied to a, to a pillar with a scarlet thread around its neck. The sins of the nation would be um, confessed. And then the priest would take that, cut that scarlet line, and walk that goat outside of the city. They would turn the goat loose, but if the goat came back, that was really bad. Didn't like the idea of their sins coming back in. So usually along the way on that walk, a cliff was involved. And then it went over the edge of the cliff so it couldn't come back into the camp again. It's interesting uh, in... uh, Jewish folklore, they say that when that, the sins, the scapegoat, went outside of the city, when that scapegoat died, the little piece of thread that was still around the, the post that was scarlet would turn white. And the priest would know our sins have been forgiven. We, we got another year until the next year at Yom Kippur. It's kind of funny because, again, this, these aren't Christians who wrote these things. But about 40 years, um, about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, they, they made a notation that the thread stopped turning white. What happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple? 
Jesus Christ was crucified. Forty years later, the temple was destroyed. And during that period, they say, in their, in their legends, not scripture, I just find it interesting, they say that that scarlet thread never turned white again those last 40 years. Interesting story. Doesn't really have anything to do with the truth other than it seems to picture the reality of Jesus Christ being that final sacrifice. Now, there was no sense in walking out with the scapegoat. It was done. The scapegoat didn't make you clean anymore. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ will make you clean. And until the nation of Israel accepts Jesus Christ as her Messiah, they cannot be saved until that point occurs. And again, this is what the Day of Atonement is looking forward to. The Day of Atonement speaks to the time in the future when the nation of Israel will one day recognize, one day see the Mashiach Nagid for who he is. We know Scripture tells us they will receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah second time when he comes back. Temple will be rebuilt. uh, Yeah, yeah. There will be a, a temple rebuilt during the or prior to the tribulation period. It's uh, it will be the I think that's the third temple. So that's Yom Kippur. Let's go on. We take a look at the next one, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, beginning in verse twelve of chapter twenty-nine. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you will have a holy convocation. You'll do no customary work, and you will keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you will present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs of the first year. They will be without blemish. Now this is a seven-day feast again. This feast is interesting to me. This feast is, uh, uh, brings about, looking at it prophetically, brings about a lot of speculation. But here's a couple of the things that I really find interesting about Sukkot, or the the Feast of Tabernacles. The, it was a campout, seven-day campout. There were rules. It's still today. You go to Israel during uh, Sukkot and you can see it. They put booths or they build lean-tos outside their house. But there are rules. How wide they have to space the wood. They has to be spaced far enough that when laying down in the booth, they can see the stars, which means it's not great when it rains. It's going to leak. The walls on the side couldn't be right next to each other. They had to be able to see outside. The whole point was they're, they're symbolizing the wilderness journey. Forty years in the wilderness, living in tents, waiting for that day when God would finally let them come into the land. It spoke of the time when they would leave their temporary dwellings for permanent ones. During the seven days... One of the children was bound to say, Dad, what are we doing out here? And he would tell them the story of the Feast of Tabernacles. A couple interesting uh, points to the Feast of Tabernacles as well. It's in the fall. Uh, The 15th of Tishri is a time of the year when the shepherds would be out with their flocks at night. In John chapter 1... Scripture lays out for us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In verse 14, around about there, it says, And the Word became flesh, and did what? Dwelt. Dwelt. That Word is tabernacled. 
He tabernacled with us. He took off his dwelling place, and for a time, he dwelt in a temporary dwelling place. And later on, he would take off that temporary for the permanent, raised as a first fruits from the dead. So there are people who believe that Jesus fulfills the Feast of the Tabernacles by his birth. Now, there are also people who say the Feast of Tabernacle talks about the time in the kingdom when the Lord brings us off of this temporary place on earth to dwell with him permanently. Like I say, when we look at things that are yet future, prophecy that's yet future, we don't have all the answers to all the puzzles. We got an idea kind of how it works and we can see pictures, you know what I mean? But, But right now they can still fit a lot of different ways. So that was the, the feast of Sukkot. And Sukkot, it was interesting, they had sacrifice every day of Sukkot. Every day, starting with 13 bulls they would sacrifice. You may notice as we go through, each day the number of bulls is going to drop by one. On the second day, you present 12 young bulls in verse 17. and verse 20, on the third day... You present 11 bulls. Now the rest of the sacrifice is exactly the same, but each day it's going to drop. On the fourth day, 10 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs. Verse 26, on the fifth day, present 9 bulls, 2 rams. Again, verse 29, on the sixth day, present 8 bulls, 2 rams. And finally, on the seventh day, how many bulls did they have? Seven. Now it's interesting because we know seven has... uh, uh, it's a special number with the Lord, right? The number of completion, the number of perfection, you know, is that the perfect sacrifice? I, you know, we don't know, but we just know that they're counting down 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8 to 7. Now, from that point, that's the, the great day, if you will, of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of that feast. It's also interesting with the, the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering the water that was given to the children of Israel. How did they get water in the wilderness? It came from a rock, right? So they would go down to the pool of Siloam. In fact, if you, if you have opportunity to go with us in Israel next year, we'll go to the pool of Siloam. We'll see the steps where the priests would walk down, fill up their earthen vessel with water, take it back to the, to the, to the temple, to the southern steps at the temple, Read from Isaiah about how the Lord would supply them water in the wilderness, a picture of the Messiah, and pour the water out, and everybody would, would, you know, exclaim and have this big shout as God provided, looking forward to the water, the living water that God would provide through the Messiah. It's interesting. I think in John, I want to say John chapter 8, might not be right, but in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus on that last day, the great day of the feast, After the high priest pours out the water, what did Jesus say? That he was living water. Come unto me, all you who thirst, and I will give you living water to drink. Fulfilling that that proclamation from Isaiah, again, on the the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see Jesus uh, taking part in that. Now, um, after the, the seventh day, it says, On the eighth day, you'll have a sacred assembly, and you will do no customary work. And you'll present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven lambs of their first year without blemish. Their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance 
Also, one goat as a sin offering, beside the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offerings. These you shall present to the Lord as your appointed feasts, beside the vowed offerings and your free will offerings, as your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your drink offerings, and your peace offerings. So Moses told the children of Israel everything just as the Lord God had commanded. Now remember I told you there's going to be a test. So, we want an idea here. How many lambs would be sacrificed in one year? Not counting personal sacrifice, just sacrifice for the nation. I told you, I'll tell you, and I will. 1,086 lambs per year. 113 bulls. 32 rams. More than a ton of flour. And 1,000 bottles of oil and wine on behalf of the nation. So when the Lord is laying out for them, these are the requirements, the feast days I want you. What else was he saying? He's saying, I'm going to be taking care of you because you're going to be able to make these sacrifices. You're going to have enough lambs. You're going to have enough bulls. You're going to have the flour. You're going to have the things that you need because God was going to provide for his people. That's spoken of as the Lord is asking for these offerings. Now the other thing, This doesn't count is the personal sacrifices that people would give for themselves or their family. Uh, Didn't include those. The priests and the Levites were busy with the job of sacrifice. For uh, it was fulfilled at considerable expense. In the days of Jesus, there is a record of 255,600 Passover lambs being sacrificed at one Passover just by individuals and households. So we're talking about an immense amount of sacrifice all being washed down from the Temple Mount down into these gutters that flow down into the Kidron Valley. Kidron means murky because when the sacrifices occurred, all that blood would flow down into the Kidron Valley who, when Jesus Christ was coming into Jerusalem, he would step over. The Lamb of God stepping over the blood of the lambs that he had come to stop by the perfect sacrifice, the complete sacrifice, the absolute sacrifice. So this is what we see pictured for us in the feast. Now I wanted to back up a minute and talk about the next one, I think, on the slide, is the Feast of Weeks. Okay, that's the one that fits in the middle that we talked about, Pentecost. It is utterly and totally different from the other ones. It is the only feast where they were called to have leavened bread. There was to be yeast that would be a part of this. Let's take a look at the next slide. Uh, At the Feast of Shavuot, it was 49 days, the 50th day, if you count uh, the Passover, only... Use of leavened bread in the scripture. Leavened bread. Why leavened bread? Why would there be two loaves of of leavened bread offered? It it didn't make any sense until you look at the Feast of Shavuot as the birthday of the church. When the church, when God brought together Jew and Gentile in one new lump. That new lump being the church. The birthday of the church, the Feast of 
of Shavuot, fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church, uh, anointing the church for service. Uh, Also, a lot of people look at the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, as also being the day when Jesus Christ will gather the church. Like I said, remember what I told you, when we look prophetically at things, it's a little more difficult to see how everything fits. The reason some people believe that this could be the gathering of the church and the rapture is because of some traditions with Enoch. For example, uh, Jewish traditions talk about the fact that Enoch was born on the Feast of Shavuot. He was born at Pentecost. It also says that Enoch, who was uh, translated, raptured, he was not, for God took him, uh, that Enoch was taken up to the Lord on his birthday, on the day of Pentecost. So some people say it's possible, you know, it's, it's like I say, you know, we're looking, we're looking at things we can't see clearly yet. We know they speak of the second coming. And how they're all going to work within the second coming, we're not sure. But we do definitely see that they're all going to be a part of that. So I just wanted to take a couple of moments and point. This feast, different from all the others, speaks of the Gentiles and the Jews coming together in one on the day of Pentecost, which happened Acts chapter 2, it was fulfilled. Uh, I think that's the last slide. Is that right? Okay, so... Man, how do you like that? I was going to do one more chapter. You guys don't mind if we do one more, do you? Yeah, you want, you want to do one more? Uh, there ain't no way I'm going to do one more. <laughs> I would have liked to have made it to 30, but uh, praise God we got through what we got through. Um, hopefully in the next two weeks we're going to close off uh, the book of Numbers, and then we'll go into Deuteronomy, where we'll hear Moses' final words to the children of Israel. Very exciting study prior to the time we go to Joshua, which is another exciting story. Why? Because it's like a mirror of the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that when we get there, but we're not there yet, so you have to hold on till we get there. Um, but with that, why don't we, let's pray, uh, let's pray for tonight. We got snacks tonight? Cake and ice cream. What could be better than that? so we'll have some cake and ice cream in a neat time of fellowship let's pray heavenly father lord god we thank you we thank you father that god you care about us enough to reiterate over and over again these important days and how they all every one of them picture jesus christ every one of them show the sacrifice that you were willing to make so that we might be made atonement for that we might have a relationship with you and Father, they speak prophetically of events that will, that will or have taken place. God, it's exciting, very exciting, Lord, that, that you call these your appointed times. These specifically, study these, know these, understand these, because they speak of events yet to come. Lord, we thank you that this new generation that had arisen in, in Israel, Lord, you, you take the time prior to them entering into the battles to make sure that they understand who God is, where he's come from, and what his requirements are, Lord. And same is true for us. You give us that opportunity to draw near to you, to understand your word, to make your word a part of our life, that we might know and understand who you are and what you require, Father, so that we might better understand your voice when you speak to us, that we might better recognize, Lord, the the voice that you use as you speak to your people. God, we thank you for the truth of your word laid out for us tonight. God, we pray, Father, that it would find that fertile soil within our heart 
that we would receive it. Father, that it would make us hungry, that we would want to understand more and know more and, and, and want to dive into the Scriptures and, and just see, Father God, how you bring all these things to fruition. Lord, we pray that you would uh, just instill that in us, a hunger and a thirst for your word. Father, we lift this evening to you and thank you and praise you for it. And also ask, Lord God, that you would anoint our time of fellowship as we lift it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to go ahead and close with a a song of worship. We invite you guys to, to hang out and worship with us, and we'll see you around the cake in a couple of minutes. I'll stand. Lord, why are we surprised when we see you on every page? Lord, you said that these are they that testify of you.
deserve our praises. Lord, go with us as we fellowship, Lord. Go with us as we leave this place, Lord. Uh, May we be more and more each day to be like you, Lord God. Lord, uh, we're lost without your spirit. Lord, we're lost without you. In Jesus' name, amen.